0: December 6th, 2018, this is the Hermetic Hour, I'm your host, Polk Runyon, and tonight we review and discuss The Spiritual Meaning of the Sixties, 2018, by Tobias Churton. This is a 653-page doorstopper of a book, subtitled The Magic, Myths, and Music of the Decade that Changed the World and it certainly lives up to its subtitle. Even though Churton's previous books have been in the mystical occult genre, this one should break into the mainstream and be read by every thoughtful reader interested in the present spiritual, philosophical, and political divisions in what we call Western civilization. Using the music... Films, television, and popular fads of the period as his mirror of reflection, Churton leads us through the decade. The cultural impact of the Beatles and rock music, the sexual revolution, psychedelics, the bomb, the Vietnam War, civil rights, and the rise of feminism are all dealt with in turn. And the inability of established religion to cope with the spiritual challenges of the time is considered. Now, the author was a child in England and Australia during the period, and he gives us a remarkable picture of the era from a growing child's perspective. My one criticism of the book stems from Churton's memory picture. I was a teenager in 1950s America. I recall that repressive era which preceded the social liberation of the 60s. I think Churton should have added... The Man in the Gray Flannel Suit, 1956, to his list of media catalysts. So, if you want to look back at the days of flower power and strawberry fields forever, turn on, tune in, and give us a listen. Now... As I mentioned in the introduction above, this book should be read by every thoughtful person who is interested in the present political, social, philosophical, and spiritual issues that divide our Western civilization. How did we get this way? When and where did it start? Of course, we cannot say that it all started in the 1960s, but that is the era when the die was cast. That was the time when the enemies of our Western European, British American culture and its social, political, and religious institutions found us most vulnerable and susceptible to infection. The same conditions and social dynamics that caused the French Revolution of 1793 and the Russian Revolution of 1917 turned our own children against our civilization in 1966. And today's progressives and left-wing liberals in America, England, and Europe are the progeny of that chaotic era. When today's conservatives belittle the progressives and declare that social justice is the only issue they have, a study of 1966, such as Tobias Schurton's, has provided leads us to the haunting conclusion that perhaps that's the only issue they need. Now, Jordan has a master's degree in theology from Oxford and has written extensively on Gnosticism. He begins a study of the 60s era with the Beatles and quickly relates that phenomenon to the earlier 1950s God is Dead philosophy. John Lennon apparently said that his group, the Beatles, was more popular than Jesus, and this tended to put the last nails in God's coffin. In sympathy with wounded Christianity... Churton recounts their mistakes in adopting to the New Spirit and finally criticizes the alliance of some Protestant churches with left-wing political doctrines. He favors a return to Gnostic Christianity with its more tolerant and mystical beliefs. He seems to have enjoyed Jesus Christ Superstar, 1969, but he does not comment on the earlier hip musical Hair, 1968. Another media staple of the 1960s that Churton overlooks was J.R.R. Tolkien's Fellowship of the Ring. And Although it was first published in England in the 1950s, the Ring series did not reach the U.S. until the 1960s, when the pirated edition soon became something of a Bible among flower children, who obviously identified with the Hobbits. I met a hippie during that era who had memorized Tolkien's first ring book with the same religious fervor that a Muslim imam would use to memorize the Koran. Now, Churton invites his readers to skip two chapters in which he defines the spiritual meaning of the 60s, but this only encourages us to read them more carefully. He analyzes the effect of social rebellion on what we consider a Christian society from a philosophical perspective. He refers to Hegel's dialectic, that pre-Marxist philosophical dynamic that justifies revolution. And he also compares the spirituality of the 1960s with the Gnostic trinity of matter, mind, and spirit. Then he moves into the Hermetic sphere, which combines the Gnostic and Neoplatonic spiritual concepts. He will later equate the sexual revolution with Simonian Libertine Gnosticism, which will eventually lead him to consider Aleister Crowley's modern thelemic Libertine Gnostic system of the early 20th century as being revived in the 1960s as an expression of Crowley's crowned and conquering child, the Aeon of Horus. Now, to substantiate this, he submits a letter from Crowley to his spiritual heir, Brady McMurtry, written a few years before Crowley's death, predicting that in 1965 Grady would see young people living in tents and wearing oriental clothes, and this would be the sign for him to begin to reestablish Crowley's Ordo Templi Orientis, which had died out in California with the death of Jack Parsons in 1952. Grady McMurtry's 1970 epiphany illustrates a point that Churton is forced to concede. The 1960s did not end in December of 1969. The ethos and mythos of the era continued until the mid-1970s. I know because I was there, and like Grady, I had the near-death experience and the hair and the beard to prove it. I had heard one version of Grady McMurtry's Crossing the Abyss experience from Francis Regarding. But uh, Churton has given us the present caliph's account of the event, which I believe to be the correct version of what happened. Now, I'm not going to read that uh, the whole that whole account. It, it's uh, uh, I'm I'm sure that uh, the, the, those of you out there that are interested in in, in Crowley and the OTO, and whatever, you certainly should read it. Uh, to straighten out uh what may be some misconceptions about it, uh what Regardi told me uh, back in nineteen uh seventy one, told me that uh that Grady had been given some L S D that was cut with strychnine and that it, this had almost killed him. And uh, that uh, this happened down on the beach, and he almost drowned, and and and, and was in the hospital for quite a while. And uh, this is uh, this was the story that I got from regarding, and and uh, so I suppose that was the story that was circulating at the time. That does not match up with. Uh, uh, well, it it, it, it it you can see where. Where they might have used that as as a uh, as a sort of a, a convenient cover story, but the truth is that uh, that what the LSD was, that he had was mixed with was was what was called FTP or DOM at the time, which was a, which was a psychedelic amphetamine, and uh, and he was very very ill as a result of it, uh, and and was at one point, they even thought he was dead. This is a, this is a very interesting account, but I do want to correct that uh, that version of the story that Rigardi got was something that somebody put out for some reason or other. I don't know what. Although the whole idea of cutting LSD with strychnine is kind of a myth, which apparently got started when one unscrupulous. Garden Beaver up at Haydashbury did cut some some LSD powder at the time with strychnine, which used to be a medicine, by the way. Strychnine was actually medicine in Victorian times uh, in very small doses. And there's one incident uh, that we know of where, where somebody cut LSD with strychnine, and that started the myth, this account of uh, the Caliphs is is, uh, very, very good, and, and, and those of you who are interested should certainly consult the book for it. Now, as I mentioned in the introduction, Churton has used the entertainment media of the era as a mirror to reflect his revolutionary character of the era. He draws upon his long career as a journalist and a reviewer to facilitate this effort, and his reviews bring back fond memories. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Remember that one? It was Jack Nicholson, and uh, it wasn't exactly, it came after the 1960s. It was a 1960s story. Yeah, it was a 1962 book, and it was, it was a 1975 film. And it reminds us of how mental illness was regarded in the 1950s and, and the early 60s. Now, suddenly last summer, 1969, should have been added to Churton's list. It wasn't. Because in the 1950s, totally sane people were committed to insane asylums for reasons of mendacity, but reversing this evil in the 1970s helped to create the homeless situation in our cities today, and there was... You know the people were being unjustly declared insane, and they never should have been committed to an, uh insane asylums. This was something that was being done over russia if you if you didn't like if you didn't like uh, communism they 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 said you were insane and and they got that idea from us because uh uh it was so bad in the nineteen fifties that you know, a wife could get her husband committed. Uh, and all she needed to do was convince the family doctor that that he was uh uh that he was round the bend and up the pole and, and you could put him on the funny farm uh it was a It was a really a terrible situation it was part of that absolute conformity of the nineteen fifties this whole button down thing that caused the lid to blow off in in the nineteen sixties now. The pressure to conform to standards of normal behavior in the nineteen fifties was a major cause of the nineteen sixties social rebellion. Other causes were fear of the bomb. You know, they used to go oh God you know, in the back in the nineteen fifties we, we had to cover under the desks, you know, the kids were all taught how to how to cover under the desks, which gave rise to the ban the bomb movement, which Church talks about, and the resentment for the Vietnam War, especially the Selective Service. Now, although Uh, Jordan is sympathetic with the aims and goals of the civil rights movement. He is not sympathetic to Marxism or what he calls the new left. He critiques the American Protestant churches for swinging leftward in their struggle to keep God alive in the face of the God is dead assertion. He quotes Paul C. Witts, the cult of self-worship, and one of the most effective descriptions of American liberal self-hatred I have ever read. And I'm going to find this thing, because this is a, um, if I can find it, let's see here. Here it is. This is Paul C. Witt's Psychology as Religion, the Cult of Self-Worship. thesis is that self-actualization is a more generic term for what, Hellbroner refers to as self-indulgence and the uttering of extravagant and heretical thoughts. We need not assume the cataclysms and consequent future of Hellbroner and others who have made similar predictions to appreciate how great is the wealth needed for a society to provide for the physical conditions of self-actualization. For even a small portion of its people, Americans forget that they are, in terms of wealth, the upper class of the world. The college campuses and youth culture in the United States in the last two decades have shown all the frivolity and arrogance of the courts of the ancient regimes. Like the French court, but on a larger scale, there has been in them little awareness of the fragile basis for the prosperity being enjoyed and of its dependence on people living far away. Instead, it is seriously proposed that self-actualization be a universal ethic for a future that is likely to raise the question of sure survival by comparison. Let the meat cake shines as a statement of compassionate realism. Now that's a mouthful but but basically what he's saying is is that is that American college students are uh that era are spoiled brats. Well having been one I, I I I I can agree with him, but I don't feel guilty about it. Um now the pressure to conform to standards of normal behavior in the 1950s was a major cause i think we read that in in his chapter on psychology Churton goes on to critique political correctness which he describes as a cult and uh this is also this um this is very very good and and this is Churton. this is this is not he's not quoting somebody else's this is his um, while the novel cult of political correctness also psychologizes its perceived sins to the extent that even customary language may stand condemned in the dock, once tarred with a psychological notions such as patriarchy or cultural imperialism, among a host of allegedly socially grievous new sins, With a cool salvation from these conditions comes a new language and anxiety about not using it. Ring-fenced from those wicked, forbidden, incorrect concepts, baptism in the cult generates conformity of the mind. And that is the intention. Seeds of these questionable developments may arguably have been sown in the 1960s when psychology began to stray into the argot of political theory. People have become word-sensitive in a manner analogous to Pavlov's famous dogs, reacting automatically and unthinkingly to external stimulus, whether justified or not. Behavior is thus adjusted. The kind of treatment once reserved by psychologists for the criminal. Remember, Clockwork Orange. Everyone knows the almost placebo effect of taking things out or that, as we still believe confession is good for the soul. And here is the nub of the issue the 1960s saw for many educated people a world where traditional religion. And any sense of the sacred was giving way and must give way to its scientific successor. The successor was presumed to be psychology. Why? Well, because religion talked about sin and guilt and repression of natural instincts or bodily lusts. And all of these apparently stopped people from experiencing their true selves. These true selves were held by suppositions prevalent at the time, to be really very good. And like the French encyclopedias era, the uh, era enlightened leaders had believed in the purity of the noble savage. Man was, if he could be only be made to realize it, good at heart and at root, and it was society that was to blame. So let's change that. There was really nothing to be ashamed of or afraid of. It was all perfectly normal. That is explicable by psychological doctrine. People just needed, well, love and care, and a nice, liberal, equitable society where everything was fair and good and anybody who disagreed could be treated and persuaded rationally to accept the new socializing process while exploring his or her creative individuality within socially utilitarian bounds. And perhaps, if it helped, then her drugs, medicinal, of course, prescribed by an expert that is a scientist, and failing that, a trained psychologist. So perhaps, even without having realized it, and having exchanged religion for psychology, people obtained a new set of sins. And some of these sins would not be forgotten or forgiven. In the 60s, the sin might be fascism or egotism. And the individual had not accepted his or her proper place in society and might be suffering from neurotic tendencies. Now that could turn into psychosis. However, the answer, repress these people, make them feel bad about themselves, or just ignore them. And it would not take very long before the whole new array of sins, psychologically disabling prejudices, would be lined up Against the your guilty individual, racism, sexism, ageism, imperialism, politically incorrect, stop me before I incriminate myself every year. new sins are being uncovered, oh man judged, including of course, the sin that can never be forgotten, the one against the holy society, also known as the people, which abstraction had become a deity, my perhaps facetious point should be cleared it should be clear enough. the concept of sin has not been eradicated, nor has guilt, nor the attitude of judgment. A person stricken with the new failings must make full public confession, some repra- some reparation, and then j- it might just be permitted to, as they say, he might be just permitted to, as they say, move on. Because we should not want their lives to be racked with guilt for past crimes against the supposed absolute equality of humanity. With these tendencies to psychologize sin began quite a long time before the sixties got going, but they were certainly received they, they certainly received hot house conditions for blooming amid the social and educational tumults of the decade. A decade that in many respects to its credit welcomed experimentation. Psychology is without a doubt fundamentally experimental and theoretical. And as a basis for guiding our social life as a whole, the world of psychology is simply inadequate for any number of obvious reasons, not the least of which is that few that few of our ideologies at the moment can agree with one another, so that we now must ask: Are you a Freudian reunion? And that's only for starters. Schools of thought and competing sects of disciples abound. Now, this is uh, this is really uh, quite a uh, quite a mouthful. I think, in many ways. Um, and has really hit the nail on the head there. He recognizes the influence of television in the 1960s. From a British perspective, he seems to prefer Doctor Who to the American Star Trek. But his childhood favorite was Adam West's Capy Batman. You remember that one. However, when older and wiser, he opted for a marvelous BBC series, The Prisoner. I, You know, I... I agree with you. I, I love that show. This, for those of you who don't remember it, was a very literary effort. Orwell's 1984 from a hermetic allegorical perspective, because the prisoner is Big Brother. He has enslaved himself. Now this 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 is a piece of cinematic literature. The prisoner. Now he goes on to critique the 1960s fine art scene. As we may recall, this was the era of non-art, when no spirituality or mystical symbolism was allowed. It was supposed to be art from the gut. Marcel Duchamp was its paragon, and he was a Dadaist who survived all the way up, up through the 1960s. And he was this paragon and he defined its values or lack of value. He once exhibited a urinal in an art gallery with his name on it and declared there, that's art, you fools. And actually he claimed that he was trying to devalue, he trying to show that this that this stuff had no value, but it didn't matter, they still paid, people still paid the thousands of dollars for this junk, even though he personally declared it had no value at all. Any report on the 60s without the influence of India and its globe-trotting gurus would be lacking in essential inspirations. Now we'll review the Maharishi, the Hare Krishnas, and most importantly, the influence of Shiva. Now one of the reasons Shiva is so important is that he is the favorite god of the publisher of this of, of inner traditions, Ahud Sperling who inspired Tobias to write the book. So let's go to page 500 and read a little bit about uh, Ehud Sperling and, and his fascination with Sheba. You may be surprised, as I was, to hear the hypothesis that is um, that in searching for the spiritual meaning of the 60s, one might well entertain the view that the era witnessed a kind of collective incarnation of Shiva in the world. This, at first startling, somewhat off-the-wall idea, came to my ear from Ahud Sterling, founder and publisher of Inner Traditions International. The idea found temporary form in a rich conversation in December 2016 about the subject of this book. Born in Israel, Ahud grew up from the age of four in Washington Heights, Manhattan, to be confronted in his teens with radical changes apparently going on everywhere. Not that it happened all at once. A science major and blues fan, Ahud Spurling, ran the gauntlet with local tufts who objected to his long hair, and he got beaten up for it. He remembers the early 60s, how there was only one disc jockey specializing in rock and roll on the, on the FM radio. And the show was on at midnight. There were a lot of people who were dead set against rock music. But rock and roll, as Ahud noted, was the medium of communication. What in due course went with rock was first the ecstasy that came through sex, and then the transcendence that came through psychedelics. The question he asked was, how did it come to be that a whole generation, or at least a very substantial portion of it, came this way? What's going on? Who reflected on the nature of Shiva? Now, at this point, I just want to put in and say that we're talking... Among an incarnation of Shiva in every person who responded to this or that aspect of the 60s counterculture. We may be at a loss to understand what this implied here, especially to one like myself who enjoyed a highly rational education and who still holds firmly to the conviction that reason is a gift of the spirit. If, however, we remember if we remember that, when we talk of gods, be it Shiva or Vishnu or another, we are talking in a context of a spiritual nature of reality, which to employ a picture means we're talking about energies of immeasurable nature, pulsating, billowing, as it were, behind everything we see like wind in a sail. Not literally behind as though if you lifted up the skin of the sky, you would find God. That is too materialistic a uh, conception. We're talking about powers that manifest themselves to our senses and our thoughts and the states of mind on earth at particular times, to which we are free to respond or not. And of course, if you a priori deny any spiritual realities, you'll find all of this utter meaningless nonsense. And, and any attempt I make to express the essential ideas will be in vain. That being the case, I shall continue, or rather let Hoots' hypothesis continue, as I am not disposed to suppress it. I should just add that one way of understanding the idea here put forward in more union terms would be to see Shiva context as the spiritual energy of the collective unconscious in this period. And I think we're all familiar with Jung's um, theory of the collective unconscious. That That's uh, way down at the bottom of the subconscious as a part of the subconscious that's connected to everybody else's subconscious. Uh, Who considered the traditional power of Shiva to destroy hierarchies, establishments, ruling bodies, or states of mind, for the making of new worlds. He considered Shiva's association with dancing, with bang, that's the Indian word for marijuana, with a divine state of mind, with transcendence of occurrences, with transformation of matter and mind. Vulgarly, one might think of Shiva as getting stoned or high on his own being or on the offerings of mind made by those devoted to what Shiva represents. Devotion is a reciprocal process. We receive but what we give. Go with your deity. Your deity goes with you, enlightening you to the energies encompassed in that conception. The ecstatic element literally to move out of stillness, to be out of one's ego, or simply to know transcending joy of the 60s. That is the extreme characteristic in finding joys. may also be seen uh, as analogous or expressive of Shiva's traditional representation. Shiva has to be calmed down, traditionally, because like the Gnostic Sophia, he can get so worked up and hot as to become unbalanced and dangerous for those around him. His ardor is, is cooled with offerings of yogurt, milk, and honey. This ecstatic element is very close to Dionysus, the Greek god so dear to Jim Morrison, the Latin Bacchus, god of ecstatic ritual, of drunken transport, of letting loose the girders of the soul, of abandonment, of formal constraints and excess of wine, Unto dreaming, loving, and spiritual release, German philosopher Nietzsche related Dionysus to chthonic powers of the underworld, or unconscious, opposed to the solar imperium of Apollo, the rational, orderly, predictable external order. Now, that was uh, a concept of of Shiva. Of course, Demius certainly presides over the tragedies that brought about the end of the era of peace and love. Now, the 1960s, that decade, that decade was, oh, when we when we went to the moon. Of course, uh, Kennedy Kennedy said we, we were gonna put a moon, a man on the moon at the end of the decade. He didn't live to see it, but we did it now. These are the tragedies of the 60s in the catalogs. In what way the tragedy? Certain persons were at the decades end already aware of the tragi- tragedy inherent to the decade itself. While most of us are, of course, aware of many well-known tragedies that scarred the decade with ill omen, beginning most famously with the murder of J.F. Kennedy, then mounting with the assassinations of his brother Robert, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, all four involved in freeing black people from legal and social penalties. Then there were the sudden deaths of three Americans and at least one Russian astronaut, and the untimely deaths of Marilyn Monroe, Otis Redding, Brian Jones, and all the Manson families' poor victims. We remember the mass deaths by starvation, the conflict in Nigeria and by Africa, the bloody Russian invasion of Prague in 1968, the beginning of the Troubles in Northern Ireland, the Malai Massacre, and many other atrocities committed in the names of the two ideologies— in the Vietnam War, the persecution and silencing of individuals in the USSR and in Cuba, the killings at Sharpsville, South Africa, the continued conflict between Israel and her neighbors, the 1966 Aberfan disaster in Wales, that was a mine. Uh, political murders in Germany, Italy, Spain, and the genocide of Chinese, Chinese ordered by Mao Zedong. And the list might seem endless on a global scale. Many, only the astronauts, it might seem, came in peace for all mankind before plunging a national flag into the moon's apolitical, national, mysterious surface. Now, catalogs the of the tragedies of the decade, but uh, the whole flower power thing went sour, and uh, it went sour, and part of that was a result of. See, if they stayed with just marijuana, but, but and then maybe maybe yeah, maybe LSD, but but then LSD was made illegal. But of course, Tobias certain presides over the tragedies. Now now he chooses his. Iconic 1960s film, the 1969 Easy Rider, as his media epilogue for the era. Now, this is the odyssey of two hip bikers who ride their choppers through the rural American south and are gunned down by rednecks who don't like their long hair. Now, the fact that they are are smuggling hard drugs hidden in one of the chopper's gas tanks does not excuse their murder. The message is clear. They are early martyrs to the social justice movement, regardless of what they were doing. They were just nice kids shot by deplorables. Let me be clear. This is my take on it, not to buy a shirt. He doesn't say this. uh, But he did select the film as an epilogue to the souring of the 1960s. I recall myself seeing... The Hells Angels Cruising Through the garbage strewn Streets of Haight-Ashbury in 1972. And I think Easy Rider had a clear message. Now, another inspiring contributor to Churton's book was his friend James Wasserman. Now, Wasserman lived hard and fast through the whole epic era and survived it to become a successful writer. Tobias Churton published a short biography of his experiences that is moving and informative. This and what I'm about to read remind me of the confessions of another 60s survivor, Philip K. Dick. And I'm sure Jim Wasserman will take that as a compliment. Tobias Churton also invited Wasserman to write his own summation of the 60s experience and its aftermath. And I'll read this as a conclusion to this review. It's on page 558. This is Wasserman's con- The spiritual meaning of the 60s is a mixed bag for me. I see elements of optimism, spirituality, and idealism in contrast with hypocrisy, childishness, and cynicism. Sorry, turn me on, tune in, and drop out is not a legitimate interpretation of the Bodhisattva vow. And on the other hand, few Westerners even know what a Bodhisattva vow was before the 60s. America, at least, was a different place in the 50s. A rigid, repressive conformity and a cookie-cutter aspirations seemed to be the norm. The horrors of World War II encouraged families to seek security. Men traded their uniforms and military discipline for the regimentation and adherence to authority that was familiar to them. There was little room for rebellion among a generation that literally had the hell stirred out of them by a fight for survival against gigantic odds and faced the very real specter of nuclear annihilation. Father Knows Best may have had the universal appeal, but rebel without a cause lurked in the dark underbelly of our culture. Bill Haley and the comments rocked us all. But when Elvis leapt into the into the, the scene, the world went nuts. Shaking and seducing, bringing soul beat to white rock and roll, the king flayed the nerves of the establishment, serenading the young like the Pied Piper. Buddy Holly followed, dragging the remainder of morality in his wake. I remember the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan Show in 1964. The next day, one of the kids in our high school combed his hair down in a dangerous imitation of the Fab Four. It was a time of awakening. Then LSD literally blew the lid off, and we never looked back. The collective unconscious was rocketed into the fifth dimension overnight. Tie-dye and hippie beads and psychedelic rock and sexual liberation The peace movement and anti-authoritarian ethics, native ethnic culture and holistic consciousness, communes and crash pads, Zen Buddhism and Indian gurus replaced whatever remained of Sunday school. Acid was cultural nuclear explosion with the youth as ground zero. Acid decimated the last vestiges of the 50s. We who had hidden under our desks in countless drills of nuclear war preparation woke up to the fact that we'd have been fried crouching with our heads between our arms under our desks just as easily as if we'd been standing about sitting in our chairs. It was a chilling insight into the phoniness of the world we knew. But I also can't shake the corruption of our side. I read the House Committee on Un-American Activities transcripts of the anti-war hearings in 1967. At the time, and was nauseated by Jerry Rubin and his self-aggrandizing behavior. He went on to become an overweight stockbroker who got killed jaywalking in front of his penthouse apartment. Abby Hoffman, whom I found interesting, committed suicide, not exactly the behavior of an enlightened adept whose path I should be following. Leftist hero Eldridge Cleaver practiced his rape skills on black women before graduating to white women. Even in 1968, when I read his Soul on Ice, I thought he should go screw himself. Carl Oglesby, co-founder and past president of SDS, that's Students for Democratic Society, told us in class at Antioch in 1967, that he had punched his mother. Maybe I am revealing myself as a, as a bourgeois, but I was mortified. He described himself as a Marxist, and I still fail to understand how that works with the Bill of Rights. When I reconnected with him briefly in the 1990s to suggest a book collaboration, I found a bitter man. The Berkeley free speech movement was before my time, in 1962. But it is depressing to see it morph into the modern, politically correct speech code movement. Today, Berkeley fascists run around campus with sledgehammers, tire irons, and boxes of matches. and the peace and love generation, with flowers in their hair,
1: rising,
0: raising the safe space snowflakes. No, no, thank you. Maybe it's because... Uranus and Pluto are in a square today rather than the conjecture rather than the conjunction they formed during the sixties. That's interesting, Alexandrria. Three people who were sincere, shiny examples of the sixties to me were older than the rest of us. I was close to Harry Smith and Don Snyder. And ran into Thule Kuferberg from time to time in New York City. And all seemed like real, real uh, non sellouts. Harry was a true magical adept in every sense of the word. Don was the quintessential artist, a photographic genius whose work demands preservation and exhibition. Thule Kufferberg struck me then and now as a true rebel poet who maintained his integrity in the face of much suffering and temptation. And I frankly love the commitment to art, growth, and survival shown by the more popular Leonard Cohen, Bob Dylan, and the Rolling Stones. None of them ever stopped doing what they loved best. Cohen, nearly to the day of his death, many other 60s folks have not stopped despite the process of growing up. I have a couple of precious friends who survived those days. They are beloved today as they were then. And we aren't as close as we used to be. The consequence of loss of proximity in adulthood. And we have our disagreements mainly on politics. But we have never lost the affection and enthusiasm we shared half a century ago. The 60s. Lighten the girders of the soul of the West, and as Crowley wrote to Grady McMurtry in 1944, 1965 should be the critical period in the development of the child horse. I hope beyond the collectivist clip-off of the period to the immortal goal of human history, which I believe to be the true spiritual message of the 60s. Now, Jim, that's wonderful uh and uh that's wonderful and I, I am i am so so pleased to 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 know that you and i share uh, share this view about the collectivist cliff-off that's my big fear yeah, if we can take what was good out of the 60s and go with it which we're trying to do then it is worthwhile but it seems like the, the collectivists have kind of stolen all the magic from us Thank you for your contribution in helping us to get it back in. And thank you uh, to Mya Churton for giving us this, this wonderful study. I recommend it to everybody. I highly recommend everybody read this book. Because this was the era where so much that is that in, in our magical community uh, was born in this era. And uh, next week, hopefully, we're going to review another inner traditions book. Uh, Rune Might by Edward Thorson, which, uh, which is the pen name for somebody we, we know well. And uh, well, hopefully we'll have Edward on next week. And this Rune Might is, is a very, very interesting book. It has some secrets that we're going to explore. So be sure and tune in next week. And, and until then, good magic, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye